Continuing in our study of Philippians, uh, going to get on to chapter 3 this morning and covering uh, about half of chapter 3. So we'll go from verses 1 through 11. And I guess in reading this, uh, this portion of scripture, uh, it kind of begs the question how we are to live. And one of the options is to be a legalist which is my background. Um, that's, that's how I was brought up in the, in the church that I was brought up in, and the family that I had had a, had a kind of slant towards that way. And to look at adding more rules to your life. And this was also Paul early on in his life, and he lived like this. So how is, how is life as a legalist? You know, you have the right rules, and you follow those rules, and it's, and it's supposed to bring you to this place where it's supposed to be better or good. And, and Paul is going to share with us his background and, and what he thinks about it. So starting in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And so most preachers have learned from Paul that um, finally doesn't really mean finally. Paul's a typical preacher, and he says finally, and he's only halfway done with his letter. And so Paul is telling them to rejoice. And so now you have to ask yourself, why is Paul attempting to encourage them in, in this way? Why is he telling them to rejoice here? Well, he's going to write about some things that aren't so joyous. And he's going to be entering this realm of false teachers and false doctrine. And he's worried that these false teachers will rob them of their joy. And he starts with addressing those who are legalistic and requiring works to earn righteousness. And funny how there are many religions, including some Christians, who feel there is something that we can do to earn a relationship with God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And if we approach our relationship with God in this way where we feel that we can earn righteousness, we end up in bondage. Galatians 5 wants to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. See, it's by grace of God that we are set free from bondage. God does it, not us. And when we look at people to set us free, we, we, set, we get this false sense of what Jesus has done for us. And we, we need to look at Jesus for our deliverance. And Jesus is the one who sets the captives free. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus came to set us free. And so often we have religious people... Sometimes they call themselves Christian, who want to enslave us to different things and rob us of our joy. And I'm not saying that this is a license to sin and just do as your flesh dictates. I'm saying that there are people who take it a step further and they create these lists of do's and don'ts for people creating a life of burden and requiring things that aren't necessarily of God. For example... The early missionaries who went to China, they, they built their buildings of worship to look like the churches did back home. And they dressed like they did back home. And the buildings and, and their dress gave Christianity this foreign flavor. But there was a missionary by the name of Hudson Taylor who adopted Chinese dress and Chinese hairstyle. 
So back in the 19th century, Chinese males, they wore long gowns and, and they had uh, their hair braided in these long pigtails. And Taylor was ridiculed by Westerners, including other missionaries. But he was effective to the Chinese because he tried not to appear as a foreigner to them. And in the 1800s, there was a, mis- a Burmese missionary by the name of um, Donoram Judson, who uh, used Burmese-style architecture and he used Burmese seating patterns and other cultural approaches. And I think what he started back then was, was great. What I find odd is that when I was doing some missions work there about 14 years ago, the ongoing debate amongst missionaries was around whether they should be chewing betel nut. Kind of strange. You know, it's, it's a mild stimulant, right? It, it's, it's like drinking coffee. So you can imagine if someone came here and started condemning us of drinking coffee. Some of you would riot because coffee is your life. So, so you get what I'm saying. Right? And I'm not saying we should compromise our stance when it's sin. But when there are things that aren't, uh, aren't, aren't sin issues, uh, we're not to, to impose our own issues onto others that lean towards something Paul is directing us away from. So Paul writes, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. See, he, he must have written the same things to the Philippians before. And he must have been concerned about their spiritual safety and about false prophets and false teachers. And Paul sees these legalists as a real threat to this church that he so dearly loves. Verse 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. This is talking about the legalists who are mixing the religious laws with God's grace. So what's up with all this? Well, dogs back then weren't how they are today in our society, right? You know, today it's a compliment. You know, it's what you call a friend. You're like, what up, dog? <laughs> right? So, not so back then, right? If you said, what up, dog? Those are fighting words, man. Right? You know, you don't call me dog. Back then it wasn't, it wasn't a compliment. And so, yes, they had domesticated dogs back then, but the type of dog that they're referring to here isn't that domesticated, considered man's best friend dog. This is the insulting kind of dog. And if you saw one of these more wild type dogs back then, it meant more likely that, you know, it was, it was this flea-ridden scavenger, right? And that it was a, a survivor, a survivor amongst other dogs. So it was like a tough cookie. It was, it was probably vicious. It was fighting its way through life. And there are things to be worried about such dogs like rabies and, and that they can be dangerous. So he's warning the Philippians against dogs and evil workers. And in a religious sense, he's warning us about heresy. Heretics who deliver a message that sounds right, that it makes sense to us, and it's even like religious sounding, but they are evil workers who mutilate. Verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now this is referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 10, where it talks about circumcision as an outward sign, but it's more about circumcising our hearts and not just our flesh. It's clear in the Old Testament that if your heart was not transformed, there, there isn't something you can do on the outside to change who you are on the inside. So he writes, we are the circumcision. And he writes that we worship God in the spirit. We rejoice in Jesus Christ and we have no confidence in the flesh. And that last phrase is is very tough 
for a legalist to accept because a legalistic person wants to put a lot of confidence in the flesh and what he or she can do on their own. Verse 4, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. So Paul is saying, I've gone down that legalistic path more than any of you will ever go. And I'm telling you that it's the wrong way. And, and then he proves it by sharing with us his legalistic credentials. He says, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee. Circumcised the eighth day. This means that he wasn't a convert, right? He wasn't converted at a later age. He was born into this law-abiding Hebrew home. See, Paul had a religious upbringing. We know that from the book of Acts, chapter 23, Paul says that his dad's a Pharisee and that he comes from a lineage of Pharisees. And so, talk about being a pastor's kid. He, He knew exactly, right? And it says, of the stock of Israel, Paul knew God chose a nation to, to show himself to the world, and, and he was of that nation, of the tribe of Benjamin. When Israel went away from God, ten of the tribes of Israel left. They fell into captivity. Who were the only tribes not to leave? Judah and Benjamin. Right? They didn't leave with them. And do you know who Israel's first king was? Saul. What tribe is Saul from? Benjamin. See, this tribe held true. He's saying, I come from there. I am the real deal. I was born into this stuff. I I am Israeli stock. I am from the tribe of Benjamin. Hebrew of Hebrews. Talking about, I know this culture. I know this language. The customs. I know everything about being a Hebrew. And he's just not a Hebrew by name, but he lives as one. It says, concerning the law of Pharisee. See, the Sadducees denied fundamental Jewish doctrines like the belief of the resurrection, but not the Pharisees. The Pharisees held on to these conservative doctrines and they they held them as true. Verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is the law, blameless. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Paul is saying that it wasn't all talk for him. He persecuted the church, right? He, his belief was more than just in his head. He acted out on those beliefs. If someone was in disagreement with Paul and, and his pharisaical beliefs, it wasn't just talk for him. He, he went after them. He fought them concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And he phrases it, the righteousness which is in the law, because he knows that that type of righteousness, righteousness only goes so far. But even at, at this legalistic righteousness, Paul says he's blameless. And he went as far as it's humanly possible to go down that legalistic path. So what Paul is telling us is that he has gone further down that road. It's the wrong road. Don't go there. Don't go down that road because it's the wrong road. It may look good and it may look right and it sounds all religious and stuff, but it's off. And then he switches to do this instead. Verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. There were good things there, but he considers those things loss. And then he makes an even stronger statement in verse 8. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He's saying, I count all 
everything lost. And he says that it's because he has an excellent understanding in its place and he points to Jesus. And then he takes it even further and he says that he doesn't just consider everything lost, but he suffers for those losses and he considers it all rubbish to gain Christ. Now, rubbish doesn't do justice in, this, in the New King James Version. In, in the Old King James Version, it's dung. Right? A more accurate definition, definition would be excrement, poo-poo. Doo-doo, right? Paul considers all the other stuff doo-doo compared to what he is going after in Jesus Christ. And, verse 9, And he found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. You know how uh, uh, Romans is, is such a long book and it takes a long time to read? Verse 9 here is a summary of Romans. Ta-da, you're done. But it's a radical point here. See, grace is at the heart of the gospel, and it's not by works. And this is so radical that Paul raises the question that everyone is thinking. And that question is, if grace is even greater than sin, if, if grace is even greater when the sin is greater, should we not sin? That's not the conclusion, but that's how radical grace is. It's not about the laws and doing them well that you earn your way to God. It's by grace. C.S. Lewis was asked why Christianity was unique. With Easter last week, it's probably fresh in our mind that we would probably say the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? No one else did that. But Lewis didn't say that. Lewis was familiar with myths. And one of those myths was of Odin who was a god that supposedly died and rose again. And he knew of other myths regarding death and resurrection. So he stayed away from that. And so Lewis replied, that's easy. What's unique, what's different about Christianity is grace. Nobody else has grace. Everyone else says you have to work and work and work and hope that you can earn your way to God. It's like everyone else had the same formula, but by following Jesus, there's a radical grace available to you. It's so radical, so much so that some may think that it's stupid because you aren't making people any different. You may think that laws will help someone go in the right direction. Paul says, that's not so. Let's look at verse 9 again and see how it summarizes the book of Romans. And he found in him not having my own righteousness, which is in which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Romans summarized by this verse, right? Righteousness is from God through faith, and it's a gift from God. It's not earned. You can't earn it. It's received through faith. And it's all about the grace of God. You can't work your way in. Don't you find comfort in that? If it was totally dependent on me... I'd mess it up. Right? Don't you, don't you find comfort in that? Can you imagine if, if, I was, if it was totally up to us? Like, whose standard would it be? What, what security would you have in that? We'd all have these different types of thresholds of righteousness, and then we'd impose it on one another. But it's freeing to know that it's a gift from God, and He determines righteousness. 
And this section of Philippians makes it clear to us that righteousness through faith is a matter of being delivered from evil that is around us. And, and that we are in danger of falling into ourselves when we are dependent on ourselves to earn righteousness. This is a major problem uh, Christians have when we present the gospel. See, oftentimes when we present the gospel, I guess that's our first problem. We don't present the gospel. But it, when we do, our biggest problem is, is that we present the gospel of Jesus' death as a, as a ransom that deals with guilt and the effects of guilt regarding our standing before God. But there's so much more to life, the Christian life, than guilt. Once you have been forgiven, you still have to live. Jesus is about the redemption of actual life from actual sin. It is by entering into his life, Jesus' life, which is still ongoing on earth, that we are delivered from actual sin. It's more than just not feeling guilty of doing wrong or not doing right. Faith in the living Christ, Jesus, raises us above just deliverance from consequences of sin. Christians often think of justification without thinking about regeneration. Justification is is being forgiven from all of our sin by believing in Jesus Christ. I believe in justification. Absolutely, I believe in it. But Christianity is not just about justification. It's also about regeneration. Being spiritually renewed. What good is justification if you aren't changed? We need a picture of our life in God that doesn't leave most of our life untouched by God. Isn't that the whole point? Isn't that the whole point of the Christian life? For God to touch our lives? And oftentimes Christians have reduced salvation to justification. We've reduced the saving work of Jesus to his death on the cross and we leave it there. Easter was just last week and and we celebrated his resurrection. See, we as followers of Jesus can't focus on his death on the cross. We have to remember that there was also a resurrection. Otherwise, we can be guilty of just reducing salvation to justification and believing that we can go to heaven even if Jesus never rose from the dead because the payment was paid full on the cross. And if that's the case, then everyone would go to heaven because God couldn't find anything against us. That sounds good on the surface. Hey, everything's forgiven. Everyone jump in the water. It's warm, right? That would make a relationship with God shallow and pretty meaningless because there's nothing to, to make us ready for heaven. To make us feel at home when we get there. And I think there's a misunderstanding of salvation. Many of us have been told that we are Christians because we've confessed that we believe that Jesus died for our sins. But the way that we've pre- been presented Jesus leaves many lives untouched, leaves many lives unchanged. What does salvation mean? Biblically, salvation means deliverance. So then it begs the next question, deliverance from what? And I think this is where many Christians present the gospel, but it's not the full gospel, because I think when we, when we evangelize, when we share the gospel, the common message is a deliverance from guilt. But if we are to present the fullness of salvation, it is a deliverance from our sins. Deliverance from sins comes from new life of God's kingdom being regenerated. We put our full confidence in Jesus. And the problem we have when we share the gospel is that we've been obsessed with this idea that the real issue is just getting to heaven. And we've taken discipleship out of this 
conversion. So now we have a bunch of Christians in the American church who believe you can be a Christian without being a disciple. And it's not helped when they're not taught anything in the churches they attend except to come and to participate in different programs that the church has and to give money. But then we find a bunch of churches that don't know anything about a commitment to Jesus. We've settled for something less in our churches. And so what we've started producing are unhealthy churches in America. That's why you have this Newsweek article that we shared last week. And and we we start trying to motivate people to do what they really don't want to do. We need to be clear about what discipleship is. A disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in their life is to learn how to do what Jesus did and said to do. A disciple isn't someone who knows a lot of spiritual things or has everything in their life under control. Disciples are simply people who they constantly revise what's happening in their life, their affairs in their life, to carry through on, on their decision to follow Jesus. Let's also be clear about evangelism in the church. The primary function of the church is not evangelism. The primary function of the church is to be a place for the dwelling of God on earth. And this requires that we grow and that we receive God, which will have a natural effect of evangelism. Let's not just do evangelism to make converts. Let's make disciples. Isn't that the Great Commission? Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Not converts. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If we are intent on making disciples and we stay true to that, evangelism will take care of itself. Evangelism is a natural function of a healthy disciple. And the role of of, of the church community is a, a primary factor in this. I think we often overuse the term personal relationship with God. I think it removes the church community from that. See, we have to remember that Christianity has a lot to do with community. And people will be drawn in by us um, uh, individually and, and also by community. And yes, individually we play a part in people's lives. But don't forget the church community. Because the church is the training center. A training center for life and an interactive life with God. We're doing good and, and blessing our communities on a larger scale can be lived out. Like tithing. Let's use tithing as an example. Can you imagine the social changes that would happen in Oakland if everyone who congregated in an Oakland church just tithed? Can you imagine what that would do for our city? And I'm not being a legalist in this matter. I'm just saying that we need community to help us show things from a community's point of view. So I'll just use our church as an example. If one person tithed at this church, well, first of all, you and I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be able to see the effects of tithing. Right? You need the entire community's pooled tithing in order to see what you have this morning. Right? It's because of an entire church community's tithes, uh, the, the, the whole community tithes, well, at least some of you do, some of you don't, but you see the benefits of the tithing, right? So at our church, a lot of ministry happens and, and that your tithes are invested towards. So there's mission support all over the world. There's church planting locally and globally. There's these local and neighborhood support towards schools and parachurch organizations, neighborhood improvements, benevolence towards uh, homeless, widowed, orphans, poor, 
operating expenses like insurance and utilities and rent and taxes, things aren't free. Right? And you know that. And it's because of your generosity we'll be blessing the neighborhood in the coming months with a community center across the street. It's not possible if the community doesn't show that. And you can be in prayer for us um, about that as we're in the planning phases right now. But we're looking to remodel a large portion of that facility there to, to better minister to our neighborhood, to better minister to our local community. We're looking to convert one of the offices upstairs to be a community office for police officers and teachers and counselors and and other community members to use as an office space if they don't have it. We're looking to remodel the kitchen to better serve our homeless and working poor community by replacing old equipment like stoves and ovens and refrigerators with more efficient equipment. Looking to change things in there to make it easier for us to clean so that we can better serve our guests. We're looking to add a disabled bathroom so that those who have a difficulty with the current bathroom situation there, that it better serves them. We're looking to upgrade the shower facilities to better host teams that are coming to be exposed to urban missions, urban ministry in Oakland. We're looking to add some more recreation to the facility to draw in more people and specifically youth so that we have more constructive things for them to do here. We're looking at the possibility of renovating some space for art studio space. And all of this because of your tithe being invested into community. And that can't be done outside of community. Because if it were just one person, you wouldn't be able to see that at work. Unless you were pretty wealthy and decided to offer a large sum of money, which I'm not opposed to. Um, But you get the point. Right. And see, Paul is encouraging us to steer clear from legalism. So my point isn't tithing, even though I believe that you should. In fact, Paul makes it clear to us that no one could be more legalistic than him and says it's not worth a doo-doo in verse eight. Right. And that's the more translation doo-doo. I didn't make it up. Paul wrote it. So we need to be careful that we are presenting a gospel of grace and, and not a gospel of legalism. And instead of legalism, Paul points us to what we are to look toward in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. See, Paul's focus is on Jesus. And Paul knows since Jesus rose from the dead, he has power. And that power can be given to him to live differently. The power of the resurrection can help us live differently. And the fellowship of his sufferings. This doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? Who wants to fellowship in sufferings? Why did Paul put that in there? Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. We won't read the whole thing, but I want to show you something starting in verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now jump down to verses 15 and 16 with me. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him 
how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Isn't that a bummer? You're going to suffer many things, Paul. How would you like to how would you like God to introduce you into ministry that way? John, welcome to ministry. Now suffer. Right? But maybe this is why he was able to endure all the hardships he faced. Not only because he was one of the ones who caused many to suffer, and so he understood that from from the the oppressor's point of view, but because he probably knew that he was going to suffer. So fellowship of his sufferings. He knew about those early on in his ministry. He knew that he was going to suffer. He knew it was part of being a Christian. Back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What's going on here? Let's take a look at Romans 6, starting in verse 4. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. If we are united with Christ, we are united with his death. We're united with every good thing that resulted in Christ's death. But let's not forget that we are united in his death and we're united in his resurrection. So right now in our lives, we are able to die to our sins that dominate our lives and are able to live a different kind of life. And some of us may be asking, how? I've I've been struggling with this stuff for so long. I've been struggling with these issues in my life for so long. Some of you may not like this answer because it has nothing to do with what you do. Like, ah, I want to be able to do something. I want to be able to do something and change my life. It's by faith. And if you're looking for ways to earn righteousness, you can't. You can't. It's a gift from God through faith in Jesus. And you can pray that you may know the power of the resurrection to be regenerated, but it's not free of suffering. That's another thing that some of you might not like to hear. It's not free of suffering. And it's also not free of dying to yourself. Righteousness is opposed to earning, right? But it's not opposed to effort. And you can put effort into things like spiritual disciplines, which prayer is one of them. And we also have a, a baptism coming up in less than two weeks at our annual picnic. And the picture of baptism is telling us about Romans 6. It's telling us about Philippians 3. See, being united with his death and being raised with his resurrection. For your old life to die... To the sins you, you're committing and, and a regenerated life that comes from the resurrection, knowing that the life of God is flowing in you. See, God wants to touch your life in incredible ways. And if you haven't been baptized, attend the class next Sunday. It doesn't lock you into being baptized like, you oh, you're here. OK, you're getting baptized. It, just go there and you'll have an opportunity to explore what baptism means, what it's about. And if it's the right time for that to happen for you, great. And there will be a time for you to ask questions and learn about what this sacrament is all about. And even if you're not getting baptized, come out to that May 2nd baptism and celebrate with our community. Identifying with those who have done this generations past, millions 
identifying with this dying to self and resurrecting, having a regenerated life. And then we'll just enjoy each other's fellowship as a family. Let's pray. God, we apologize for uh, misrepresenting you in any way. If we have to folks in our church and people in our community, we ask, Lord, that you would empower us to show them uh, the real Christ. That you would be able to have us identify with your death and also identify with your resurrection for regeneration to happen in our lives and not just to say you did it all on the cross and justified our sins and, and leave it at that and, and kind of don't take it any further but there was a reason why you did those things and it was a it was a opportunity for, for all those things to be put on the cross but then for us to have a, a new life for us to be touched by God when there was a chasm before but now that your death was there it can be touched and we can be a regenerated person Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.